this first Sunday of Advent, we begin a series called Making Room for the Holy. And we hear the familiar story of the angel Gabriel coming to Mary to say she will give birth, but also the lesser known story of Gabriel coming to Zechariah to tell him that he and his wife Elizabeth will also conceive. Listen for what God might be saying to you. The reading is from Luke 1, beginning at verse 8. Once, when Zechariah was serving as priest before God and his section was on duty, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and offer incense. Now, at the time of the incense offering, the whole assembly of the people was praying outside. Then there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was terrified, and fear overwhelmed him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will name him John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. Zechariah said to the angel, How will I know that this is so? For I am an old man, and my wife is getting on in years. The angel replied, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. But now, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time, you will become mute, unable to speak, until the day these things occur. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was much perplexed by his words and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy. He will be called Son of God. What grabs you in this story? What warms your heart, thrills your soul, however you would describe it, what grabs you? That was the question that Dr. Anna Carter Florence posed three weeks ago. You may remember she preached here on the first Sunday of November. It's part of our centennial celebration. But she stayed over on Monday and led a preaching workshop for some three dozen clergy. And she said, what grabs you? Sermons get traction when you find something that just won't let go of you. What is it for you in this story? I mean, there's all the stuff outside of the story, Santa and cider and trees, but in the story, so many people choosing between Matthew and Luke, because those are the only two versions, they love Luke's story. Mary's going to give birth to a baby named Jesus. They'll lay him in a manger of straw. There'll be shepherds watching their flocks by night, and angels will sing. I mean, what's not to love about it. But Anna said sometimes it's true, it's what 
grabs you, thrills you. Other times, it's what troubles you. Surely something troubled you in the reading. It certainly troubles me. You you heard the story. Zechariah, it's his turn to go into the temple to offer the sacrifice. He's in there when the angel appears. The angel brings a message that against all odds, he and his wife Elizabeth, who've had trouble conceiving, which is no small thing, they will against all odds have a baby, which is pretty much what the angel will say later to Mary. Against all odds, you will conceive and bear a son and name him Jesus. And both of them, Zechariah and Mary, have questions, which sound somewhat alike. How will I know and how can these things be? Except they must be very different questions. Because Zechariah gets silenced, muted. Mary gets to sing and her picture hangs in portraits all over the world in art galleries. What gives? What is wrong with his question? Now, if you're thinking, because I thought this, if you're thinking, well, Mary's sounds kind of devotional, like, well, how can these things be, you know, sweet and innocent, whereas Zechariah's sounds like he wants secure knowledge. How will I know? If you're thinking that, well, here's the problem. In the book of Genesis, Abraham and Sarah can't have any kids. The angel comes and says, you're going to, and Abraham asked the exact same question word for word. How will I know? He's not muted. (laughs) Sarah laughs. She actually laughs. She's not muted. What gives? This past week, I spent several days in San Antonio, Texas, at the annual meeting of the American Academy of Religion and Society of Biblical Literature. It's a mouthful. But it's a group of scholars from all over the world who come and basically wrestle with questions. Because at the heart of religion is this inquiry, this wrestling, this questioning. And while I was there, my mind went back 20 years. Our middle child, when she was in sixth grade, something like that, went on an overnight retreat. It was just at a house of one of the kids with adult sponsors there. And that night she called, Dad, come get me. Are you sick? Just come get me. Okay, I'll come get you. You never know. You get there, and it's pretty obvious. They've got her at the door, ready to go. And it's obvious she's ready to escape, and it's pretty obvious the adults are ready to get rid of her. Like, just get her out of here. Get her. Get her. So we get in the car, and I go, Melissa, what, what, what happened? She said, well, we were having a Bible study, and I kept asking questions. Okay. No, it wasn't okay, Dad. They, they kept just kind of spouting cliches and easy answers, and I just kept asking hard questions. And they threw me out for that. And I said, Melissa, I have never been prouder my whole life. You are a chip off the old block. And when she went to college, she majored in religion. She wanted to wrestle with the questions. The way I see it, if we are people of faith, We are all, in one way or another, majoring in religion. We are wrestling with the questions. At that conference, one of the sessions, there's so many breakout sessions, but one of them was about what would it mean to sometimes preach against the grain of the text, to question it. 
and that's what I want to do. I want to suggest that the angel Gabriel overstepped his bounds. I mean, it could happen. Uh, he's faithful in one thing. He, he comes, he says, you're going to have a baby, you're going to have a baby. But there's no indication that God said, now, if they have any questions, you should mute them. I think he overstepped his bounds. It's possible. Years ago, I worked with a woman at the seminary, and when she gave birth to twin boys, she decided to name them after the, the two archangels, Michael and Gabriel. I called her this week, and I said, hey, remind me about Gabe. And she said, oh, my Gabe, well, he didn't like conflict, didn't like to ruffle feathers. And when I hung up the phone, I thought, well, the real one did. The angel, oh, my, he was all about it. Well, if you've got your doubts, well, I'll just mute you. And he zaps him. What gives? I think we are invited to ask questions, hard questions of God, and especially in times of suffering. And the reason I say in times of suffering is because of what I read in the text and what I read in the news. Let's start with the text. When Zechariah goes to make this offering, we didn't read the whole thing, but the way Luke starts the story is now in the time of King Herod. Well, Herod was the puppet king of the Roman Empire. He was corrupt. Luke wants us to hear that. His readers would not have missed that. When he gets around to writing the gospel 50 years after this story is set, well, everybody hearing a story about the temple would know it's been destroyed. By the time Luke writes, the Romans have destroyed the temple. It's in the face of suffering that the angel comes. I picked up a book at this exhibit. Actually, I picked up a lot of books. But this one book was about the characters in the Bible who sometimes ask questions and sometimes don't. Like, like Abraham, for instance. He asks, how will I know? But when God says, take your son and sacrifice him, he doesn't ask a question. But the book also looked at the story of Job. Some of you know the story of Job. He lost everything. His kids died, lost his wealth, lost his health. And that's when his wife and his friends come and they say, well, just curse God and die, get it over with. And this scholar says that the book of Job throughout the rest of it is not just about suffering, but what will we say during times of suffering? What kind of religious discourse will be allowed? And there were two options. You could curse God or you could bless God. But the scholar says what Job does is take an alternative, a third way. He questions. Question after question after question. And when the book gets to the end, God finally responds with God's own questions. And scholars have for years kind of read it, most people have read it, kind of like God finally gets around to, you know, who do you think you are, Job, kind of question. But this scholar said, no, no, no. Job, Job is found to be righteous and approved, but God joins in the questioning. It is okay to ask questions. When I think about the suffering in our world, 
well, the list is long. I mean, you could start with the Holocaust, Rwandan genocide, 9-11. But I was thinking about the suffering that comes closer to home because suffering does come to our homes. I have dear friends in Columbia, Missouri, who divorced a few years ago. And it's complicated because it always is, but something happened a few years before that that I can't help but think contributed. Their son, adult son, was driving and on the cell phone with his wife, hadn't been married all that long, when he was involved in a terrible accident, the kind where you get penned in. And in pain, he's talking to his wife, and the car catches fire. And she listens to the whole thing. You have any questions? In 1940, C.S. Lewis, probably best known for the Chronicles of Narnia, he wrote a book about suffering. And this is what he said. He said, suffering is God's megaphone. It's the way God gets our attention. And sometimes God needs to get our attention because maybe what we've done has led to this suffering. I do not for a minute believe that. That is not the gospel. And C.S. Lewis changed his mind. 21 years later, he wrote another book under another name. And he said, I was wrong. God does not cause suffering, but God appears to be silent. He said, it's like God has bolted the door, turned out the lights, and is pretending not to be home. And what happened in those 21 years? Well, he'd been a bachelor most of his life, but he met a woman, a woman named Joy, and they were married, and she was the joy of his life, and then she got cancer and died. And he said, it makes no sense. But he had questions. There are not enough lights at Christmas to overcome the darkness. But he's right. God is silent. I mean, God's not even on stage here. Near the end of that workshop with Anna, she said, now, near the bottom, there's these other questions, like, what's the sermon going to say? And, of course, in this case, I'm just saying it. It's okay to ask questions. But she said, the other thing is, you have to think about what's a sermon going to do. And to do that, you have to go back to the text. You have to read the text again and again and see what it's trying to accomplish. So I went back, I read it. I lost count of how many times I read this in English and in Greek. I just kept reading it. But one of the other books I picked up at the exhibit is a new translation. It's called First Nations Version, an indigenous translation. Greek scholars and representatives from 10 Native American tribes got together and interpreted, translated the New Testament for that kind of culture, for Native Americans who would hear this knowing their story. You know the whole Bible was written in response to suffering? The Babylonians in the old, the Romans in the new. So I read it in this translation. And there I saw it. Gabriel says to Mary, 
your son Jesus, his reign will never end. Which, of course, you're supposed to instantly hear, but Herod's will. The suffering will come to an end. But here's what I love best about the translation. You know that Native American tradition where names mean something, the name of people? It's true in the Bible, too, but we just we kind of miss it. But here's Herod's name. Bad-hearted chief looks brave. <laughs> Is that great or what? Bad-hearted chief looks brave. And then Jesus. This is what his name really means. Creator sets free. Is that great? Creator sets free. And for all my picking on the archangel Gabriel, who hopefully will not show up at my house today and mute me, I think he got a lot of things right. I mean, he, he brought the message to the two that you'd, you'd have a child. But it's the, the line that angels always say in the Christmas pageant and in the Easter pageant after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Angels always get to say this line, be not afraid. Don't be afraid. With all of the suffering around us, and with all of the questions inside of us and on our lips, God's messenger says, don't be afraid. 